Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. Before I introduce today's guest, I encourage you to invest in the Hopi Tutsqua Permaculture, an indigenous-led nonprofit on Hopi reserved land in northern Arizona, rebuilding culturally sustainable communities who value, care for, respect, and nurture Mother Earth. For more information, visit HopiTutsqua.org. H-O-P-I-T-U-T-S-K-W-A.org. My guest today is wilderness guide and acclaimed author of books exploring off-the-grid living, Mark Sundin. Mark is best known for his books, The Man Who Quit Money, The Unsettlers, and Car Camping. From the periphery, I've been tracking Mark's writing career over the years, and I'm truly thrilled to be speaking with him today. So, before you heat up that microwave burrito, consider a cup of tea with herbs you grew in your own garden and listen somewhere that enlivens your sense of wonder. And with that, I give you the one and only Mark Sundin. How's that? That sounds good. Can you hear me? I'm a, I'm about 150 feet from the house in a little outbuilding shed cabin. Sweet. Yeah, so I can hear you perfect. I get good um, Wi-Fi here, but I've never actually done a, a Zoom call from this location before. So it's a first time for everything. Yeah, it seems like it's working. Thanks so much for doing this today. Sure. Why don't you tell me where you are right now, Mark? Sitting in a, a little cabin about 12 by 16 feet um, outside of my in-laws house. So my uh, wife's parents' house here in Whitefish, Montana. Hmm. And uh, we came up here. Uh, they have a, a flower farm. And so we're helping them with the flowers. And... Uh, we have a 13-month-old baby, and they're helping us with the baby. And uh, we recently moved to um, Moab, Utah, and uh, I have a, a, an old house there. But when we got there, it was 108 degrees, so we decided we'd take a little break from this desert heat and spend the summer in Whitefish and head back to our new place in um, September. Beautiful. Anyway, I'm surrounded by a, a ton of trees and I can hear birds and, and a raven and uh, it's, it's really green and woodsy here. Mm. Sounds amazing. Your wife, C, grew up close to where you are right now? Yeah, in the same house as a matter of fact, yeah. So her parents have lived here since the early 70s and they had, initially uh, um, this was a barn and they bought, or her mom bought the barn and the land. And so they grew up in the, in the barn without running water and electricity, uh, very back to the land. This is kind of in the eighties. And at some point barn burned down and um, no one was hurt, but they built a house that sort of uh, is in the same place as the barn was. Amazing. Uh, so obviously there was probably something about C's upbringing and the energy she exuded from living so simply that you were really attracted to. Can you identify what it was? You're like, ooh, I like this girl. Yeah, she definitely had that, that back to the land upbringing. And um, she uh, was a Montana girl and had worked on trail crew and fire crew. And um, she definitely was was pretty tough um <laughs> and you know and and yeah she grew up sort of embodying a lot of those those ideas that i was aspiring towards having grown up in the suburbs of of la um and when i started to write or when i finished writing the unsettlers um it ended up being a book about three families raising children uh, off the grid and that wasn't exactly how it started mm. and a friend said oh i can't wait to um read about you must have written a lot about cedar and how um you know her family's experience her family and falling in love with her happened at the same time as you writing this book about these radical families and i was like interesting no actually that's not in the book at all <laughs> and so at that point the book wasn't finished yet and i went back and, and realized that that was actually what was driving so much of the book and i kind of wrote that into it in the later draft wow i love that 
That's interesting, man. It's uh, it's like your subconscious was pointing you in that direction and wanting to dig deeper into those topics, but you kind of didn't. It took you a minute to connect the dots, maybe. Absolutely. You know, when I when I started writing the Unsettlers, I really imagined it was going to be about more of like the, I kind of like the Thoreau slash Unabomber type guy, mm. who typically was a single white male, you know, older, living in in Montana. And as I met a couple of those guys and interviewed them and, and read about them, I felt the story had been told um, enough times that I wasn't that interested in. Um, I was also interested in the question of, of, are there women, are there people of color, are there families doing this, or is it just um, single guys? Mm. But the third thing, which you talk about, is that my, you know, my subconscious was that, yeah, if, as I was writing the book, I was uh, courting and then getting married to cedar who had uh grown up this way and so i think um you know i was sort of looking for a, a template to, as to how we could incorporate these values into our own life and eventually like i said i ended up choosing all families uh, with children because to me that that also just kind of was something i hadn't hadn't read before and and the stakes were higher, right? Like if you want to fuck up your own life by going and living out, by cutting off all ties with society and, and not having any money, not having any um, possessions, you know, I use, I say, fuck up your life facetiously. It's, it's a real dream for some people. But if you want to take those risks, <laughs> um, that's great. You know, you don't, yeah. the risk of, of, it's just your own life. But once you start having kids, it, it becomes much more tricky. You know, are we going to yep. not have electricity are we not going to send our kids to school are we not going to send them the piano lessons uh, or have medical insurance those are the questions that the people that i wrote about were faced with hmm. yeah because i remember in the unsettlers i read something uh, about you were just sick and tired of the whole mentality of living a life where you have to fill out a form in order to get approved to be able to fill out another form <laughs> that will then eventually perpetuate all the things you hate you know yeah, or yeah. destruction of the earth, corporate bullying, yeah. you know, and more time on screens. So did that come at the beginning before you started writing The Man Equip Money and then Unsettlers? Where were you with all that? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I always has, has had chafed against those kind of like busy work type jumping through hoops, um, red tape things. And, you know, I'd kind of done my best to... Um, avoid them. But I think it wasn't until later in life, you know, we're spending all this time with, with Daniel Suelo, who's the man who put money and thinking hard about how our society is organized that I, that I really start to realize that those things that you were really like working for the bad guys. I mean, mm. um, if you start, for example, you start to look at where your most basic necessities come from, you know, any food you buy at a, at a regular supermarket is going to be part of the industrial agriculture system that's, um, you know, exploiting people and uh, absolutely like heinously treating animals and destroying the earth. Um, using gasoline is terrible <laughs> for what it does to geopolitics, the wars it causes. Uh, and, um, of course, the, the damage that does to, to the planet as well. And I mean, pay, even paying taxes, you know, most, the, the majority, I don't know, some, a, a high percentage, say 50 or 60% goes to war and military. And you, it's just like the question asks is how could I excise myself from the system? How could I not be a part of the things that are destroying us? And it's incredibly difficult as the people in my book demonstrate. I mean, if you even there what might seem like a simple decision, uh, to not use gasoline that basically like alienates you and um, from our modern society in a way that's profound. I mean, if, like how are you going to get around a whole society is organized around um, motorized vehicles. You know, this isn't uh, India or some Peruvian village where you can walk everywhere. <laughs> or, right. So it's, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, to make the decisions to, to stop using those products. Yeah. I mean, you talked about the comfortable life is that slippery slope towards the consumer life. And mm -hmm. I am contributing to the problem as I'm sitting on this microphone talking to you on Zoom. Yeah, we're using electricity that, uh, you know, probably comes from 
coal burning, coal mining and coal burning. <laughs> so it's, it's really hard to escape. The extreme is being, is it Ethan Holmes? Is that his name? Ethan Hughes. Yeah, and you see, and you see the level of, of, of intentionality that, that he um, embodies and that he, he's living in this, in this community in, the, in rural Missouri with no electricity, uh, no internet, no cell phone, no gasoline, no, you know, it's all, it's like Amish, 19th century Amish technology. But then he, he doesn't want to just be a dropout and be a sort of like meditator. So he's an activist. So, but in order to, to, to you know, there's nothing to protest in, in where he lives in this tiny little town. So he has to ride his bike to the train station, which is like five miles, leave his wife and, and two kids behind because they can't bring the kids on these things, get on the train, go to Kansas City or wherever, and then get off the train and ride his bike to the, the nuclear weapons manufacturing facility and then get arrested there. Um, and it's a very different thing than the, the Twitter activism, which incidentally I think is good and important, but it is using some of the, the it's making a deal with the devil in, tr in trying to solve these problems. Can yeah. you just paint a picture for what consumed you the second you entered onto their property in the middle of Missouri in your investigation or just endeavor to figure out what they were doing? Yeah, I think I found the place to be incredibly peaceful just because there's no, you're not hooked into any electronics. Um, and, but also it had this intensity of, of, of hard work, mixed with activism, mixed with um, a spiritual practice. I mean, they're really trying to cover all the bases. So, um, and you know, they've been activists their whole lives before starting this community. And they'd seen people burn out because they were spending all their time signing petitions on the internet. Or, um, uh, you know, even a professional activist spends a lot of their time like eating gas station food um, on their way <laughs> to and right. from. And 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 some point that that feels wrong to be like okay here I am like again benefiting relying on the most sort of heinous uh, manifestations of late capitalism which is let's call that the microwave burrito <laughs> um, microwave burrito that's the epitome <laughs> but you know just like the idea that like uh, you can get your needs met instantly and cheaply and if you follow the 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 chain of that microwave brew, you're going to find exploited workers. You're going to find uh, animals that have been um, treated hideously and you're going to find, find a destroyed planet. So how can I get to the re to the protest eating this microwave burrito and feel good that I'm actually fighting capitalism or fighting the, the monster when I'm, when the monster's like getting me there. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so they, they've taken all that into account. Um, and they, they're trying not to burn themselves out. Um, they're trying to have fun. They're trying to have a, a spiritual practice. They, they were part of a Quaker, a Quaker meeting um, that was, I think, from Kansas City. And, um, and that just gave the place an emotional intensity when you visit. Um, to, have, to have everyone unplugged from technology, but totally plugged in to, to radical overthrow of, of, of capitalism and overthrow of, of sort of the institutional racism that has, you know, this country was built on. I mean, you know, I came into activism mostly through environmental. I worked as a, as a wilderness guide for 10 years and I've lived outdoors a lot of my life. And I've lived in very small remote towns in the middle on the edge of wilderness. And so I guess that's where my activism started. And, as I came into, you know, as I got older and I mean, I've always known that racism was an issue, obviously, but mm -hmm. studying um, society the way I did for the unsettlers, it, it became clear that the forces that are destroying the ecology are the same forces that enslaved people and now continue to exploit people, right? It's, it's just trying to get more to squeeze more resources out of the world for less money and so there's three families that i profile in the unsettlers and um 
there's Ethan and Sarah that I just mentioned. There's a family of um, here in Montana, Steve and Lucy and their three kids who were kind of pioneers in organic farming and have done it for 35 years. And the other family is in Detroit. And it, this is um, sort of uh, unexpected turn and exciting turn that my research took. And this is a, a black woman and a white man who are married, they have a daughter and they run a farm on, a, on vacant lots in Detroit. And so I was able to tie in the his the, the sort of the the destruction of Detroit, both environmentally and um, racially. I mean, the, the the city was built, and then the white people abandoned it, and um, sort of like destroyed all the infrastructure. Um, and in some ways, now it's returning to almost a rural existence. Um, but you know, for that family, for Greg and Olivia, you know, doing local food doing the farmer's market, doing organic, no chemical food was the same fight as stopping institutional racism in Detroit and having a black owned business that was viable and that made money and, and could provide healthy food for, for the people. And um, again, this gets back to that micro burrito. It's like, is it possible to be an activist and be in the protest and eat healthy organic food that doesn't rely on petrochemicals? The answer yeah. is yes, but it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. So that's part one of that question. And part two is, so um, after the book was finished, but before it was published, so this was 2016, it was about a year of a wait period, um, I went up to Standing Rock during the uh, uprising there. And I really felt that the um, leadership, the native leadership there, was articulating this thing that you and I are talking about better than anyone ever has. This mm. idea that that the forces that want to destroy the planet are the same forces that have tried to destroy the Indians for 500 years. And so, um, and they were, and for them, like the 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 fight was against the pipeline. And for a lot of white and white environmentalists, they said, oh, yeah, we don't want to, you know, have an oil. We don't want more oil infrastructure that could, that could spill or leak and destroy these people's uh, reservation. But for them, it was more like it was a, it was a sovereignty issue, right? It was more about we had these treaties that were violated. Um, the, the state of North Dakota does not have any right to build this without our permission and we're not giving it. Um, and so it had to, it was um, centuries old treaties issues that, that most white people don't even know exist. And for most Standing Rock Lakota, it's like, hey, remember that treaty in the 1850s? Like, let's, let's stick with it. The same Congress, it's the same Congress who signed that and you violated your own treaty. It's supposed to be a law and order nation. Um, mm. Anyway, so it was really, it was really inspiring to see the environmental and the the racial justice movements coming together as they did in Standing Rock. And a third part of that question, uh, the next thing that happened, and while I'm still waiting for my book to come out, I've been to, I've written my book, I've been to, and then all of a sudden Trump is elected and then inaugurated. And, you know, my understanding of racism did not prepare me for that result. I didn't think that America was racist enough to elect Trump, and I was wrong. And suddenly I felt very uh, like I'd missed the boat, you know, because I'd spent five mm. years, or I'd spent seven or eight years between the man who quit money and the unsettlers, you know, really studying radical resistance, radical activism, people who are actively trying to dismantle capitalism, dismantle the sort of petro-industrial state. And that seemed like on the brink of being the next big thing. But with Trump's election, I was like, oh no, 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 no. We gotta, we gotta fight the racism first. And mm. I think we need to fight them at the same time. But I, it's, I mean, when, when you have the um, Nazis and the, and the Confederate flag and the, the um, alt-right marching in the streets, like when we literally have white supremacy in the streets and in the White House, like 
it's it's harder to to remember why it's that important to have organic local food that, that doesn't suck on petrochemicals and, and why it's important not to use the internet. You know, the internet has become such a great tool for activism. I mean, Standing Rock, everything was organized on Facebook. Um, I don't think most activists really think about what does it mean to be more and more reliant on electricity? Mm. Not, you can't get local organic electricity. <laughs> no. What does it mean to spend more and more time sitting inside looking at a screen? Like that's certainly alienating to the soul, even if you're doing yeah. good work. Yeah. And so um, I'm, as much as I, like, I've become addicted to, to Twitter activism and as much as I appreciate the quick flow of, of, of important ideas, I think we are going to pay a price, you know, both um, ecologically and, and spiritually for the amount of time we're being forced to, to look at screens. Yeah, man. I know. I'm, a, I'm actually a, a huge Thomas Merton uh, fanatic and scholars, yep. and he spoke out so passionately against technology just because he spoke so ahead of his time, but he just knew yeah. that it was the great distractor from our facing our own selves and taking in the beauty of the present moment you know so like even something you said about the great five in moab what was the book you know that the character zeb the, yeah the, the, uh, the big sky the big, the big sky, sky that's about, right about the montana frontier yeah. Yeah, yeah so this kid like goes to find his uncle zeb you know just tucked away in the woods yeah. yeah but he but his uncle zeb is complaining about how the tourists are overtaking you know the land and it's like yeah. wow that was 1830 something or something. should have been here should have been here 10 years ago when when everything was still pretty and new yeah yeah and then, and again like again those waves of um industrialization settling the same forces that have destroyed uh the natural world are the ones that killed and uh kill the Indians and put them in reservations. And um, mm. it's a, uh, you get the, I think the environmental movement just needs to always understand that, that it's not only about saving a place to go on a hike. You know, mm. it's about yeah. social justice. It's about, it's about, it's about uh, white supremacy. It's about racism. And um, I mean, as we saw like with bears ears, um, again, like that was came right after Standing Rock, but like those two uh, teams got together, right? Like the environmental activism activists and the five tribes down in the Four Corners area. They 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 got together with and and they they won, and then they were overruled by Trump. Same thing with with uh, Dapple up at Standing Rock. Like they did technically win, and then when Trump was elected, he overruled their win. What do you say to that, man? Um, I, don't know. I, ha I have I have a lot of friends who are far more radical than me, and they're always saying that you know Democrats and Republicans are the same. And I just look at those two examples, and I say, you know, Trump literally defeated these super important um, Native American victories. I mean, like historical victories having a, a national monument to be sort of co-managed by the tribes. And that's something that, that hasn't, that's, that's reversing 500 years of, of, of colonization. I mean, it's not, it's not overturning it, but it's a move in the right direction. Um, same thing with DAPL with Dakota access pipeline. Like that was like an amazing feat that the government, that Obama's administration was going to side and, um, basically tell them that they had the authority to kick out this 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 corporation and um those things were both overruled and um by a single by by the election basically by trump yeah. and so i don't know i say you got to keep fighting got to keep fighting i read something about your time in standing rock and i had this instant picture of you sitting in a circle with Pawnee mm -hmm. praying for the Lakota Sioux's water, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and they prayed about the big snake. Yeah. The black snake. Yep. The black snake consuming all their water, drying it all up. The Lakota Sioux were longtime enemies of 
right? The Pawnee, right? Oh, the Pawnee, yeah. 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 And here, the Pawnee are sitting in a circle praying all day for Lakota Sioux. And meanwhile, the people that they're praying will stop their work are the same people who subscribe to what's written on our dollar bills. It was a beautiful moment to, to witness, to see all these tribes that had been uh, pitted against each other for centuries mm. coming together. I mean, there was this big public reconciliation between the Crow and the, um, and the Lakota. Um, yeah, the Pawnee had, had, had been on frosty terms for 150 years. And um, to witness that, to witness that brotherhood or sisterhood or awakening of all these different tribes coming together was, was wonderful. And, um, and of course, the, the flip side was it was just so tragic to see the state come in with violence and crush mm -hmm. them. And I wouldn't say they completely crushed them, but brutalized them. And like to me, that was a, a, a another sort of life-changing moment because I'd never witnessed that kind of state violence against people, and um, it was so fucked up. And it was it laid bare the degree to which our government is a shill for <laughs> or a tool for the corporations, right? Yeah. Because you have this corporation that's building a pipeline that has actually served no public good. It's just to ex export the oil to other countries for profit. And you have um, the state and local governments coming in like a military and, um, I mean, basically declaring war on, on civilians. You know, they had military equipment, they had surveillance planes, they had drones, they had... Um, masks and shields and and pepper spray and all of that stuff they were and the thing that was especially fucked up about it is in the old days you know you to do that you'd have to have the governor call in the national guard and that would indicate to everyone in the world that that this was serious and that um and the governor would have to take the heat if people didn't want the national guard they might vote the governor out but nowadays this is a whole rabbit hole that i'm not going to get all the way down no, but a county sheriff, a county sheriff up there, he was able to summons um, other county police forces, or all through the country. So there's people from Minnesota, um, there's people from Illinois, I think, and he and they came with their armored vehicles, with their military training and tactics and gear, and he basically had like a private army to put down this uprising of civilians. The sheriff who was running this this show was always saying, "Oh, I'm just law and order. I'm just enforcing the law." But you know, it was so selective. He would enforce laws like trespassing, um, but he wouldn't enforce the laws that the that the corporation was breaking. I mean, mm. the the laws that that Dakota Access were breaking were hugely more important, and they're just now being figured out. Un, uh, you know, settled in court, what's this, five years later, four years later? But he didn't enforce those laws. He just wanted to, like, I mean, he, he basically was a tool for Dapol, right? He chose which laws they wanted enforced, and he went out in short and um, enforced them with, with brutal, brutal violence against unarmed civilians. And that's the way America works. Um, and, I mean, we're learning it again the last past couple months with with – Black Lives Matter, with George Floyd protests and with Portland. Um, but that's the way it works. Like we still have a violent militarized police state, which will fuck you up if you, if you stand in its way. Yep. That's just how it is. And then I'm just thinking through, it's like, so the way forward, anger is a huge part of that. Right. Mm -hmm. But, Ultimately, it's got to be fueled by compassion or else it's just piss and vinegar, you know? Another thing that I found so beautiful at Standing Rock is that everything was led with, with prayer and with mm. love. Mm. And there was obviously a lot of anger. Yeah. 
but um, you know, I don't know that. I guess I have two thoughts about anger. First, it's totally real. It's valid. It's important. And it's the only. It's the only way you can react after seeing someone murdered, like George Floyd was. Mm-hmm. The only way yeah. you can react. Only way you can react to the way that our government uses our tax money to put children in cages at the border. Yeah. But I, I guess I just think that as a long-term tactic, and again, this is getting into tactics, but it doesn't work because you can't, you can't maintain your sanity for long enough. You know, you got, if you're going to be a, a lifelong activist, you have to have a, a spiritual core that you can draw from. And again, that, that was something that I saw at at Standing Rock that that, that this that the religion and the prayer came first. Mm. That's something I don't see in the environmental, the white environmental movement, where I feel like there's a lot of like anger about policy and bills, and a lot of like clenched fists. You know, we don't want this dam, or we don't want this coal plant. But I mean, the environmental movement is so secular, and I think that's. It's because that for the most part, you know, what, what American white people have as their, as their background is Christianity, which yeah. has been so deeply compromised and co-opted by the violent state and by the, the corporate state that it's, it's hard to, to join if you, if you really believe in, in, if you really believe what the Bible says, it's hard to be a Christian. Yeah. I mean, those two are inextricably entwined. I mean, it's just the roots go too deep now. How has all of this experience and being a survival guide through Moab and a lot of other beautiful, majestic canyons and mountains to writing these books, to facing off, seeing what the Lakota were facing at, at Standing Rock, this tapestry of experiences you've seen, how do you and Cedar see the spiritual path cast itself as you just go about life? That's tough. I mean, I feel, yeah, I feel like, um, um, you know, I was raised in a kind of Protestant Christian church mm-hmm. and it never meant much to me. And mm-hmm. it, definitely being in the wilderness was the first time that I really felt some kind of uh, mm. transcendent spiritual experience. Mm. And I was able to yeah. do that without having any religion per se mm-hmm. and then spending all that time with Suelo the the man who quit money he grew up very fundamentalist and he can quote chapter and verse from the bible and he he had you know he'd spent time in a buddhist monastery and he'd spent time with the, with the Dalai Lama literally but he'd eventually decided to to, to, to revert to the language of Christianity because he said, you know, this is still a 75% Christian nation. Hmm. And these are the people you, whose hearts and minds you need to change, you know, people who are sort of like white liberals who are, who are doing Buddhist retreats and yoga and meditation. Like they're kind of the already the converted. And so it was really interesting for him to see him, to learn from him, how to like, how he talks about Jesus and how he says like, you know, here, Here's the here's what Jesus said. Now, why don't the Christians follow it? I think that mm, as a quote, wow. a quote from Gandhi. I think Gandhi said, like, you know, I love I love Christ. It's it's the Christians I'm worried about. So that was really inspiring to me as a way of kind of connecting with what I was brought up with, and that didn't mean anything to me as a kid, and realizing that that actually like the teachings of Jesus are more relevant and more radical and more revolutionary than ever. And they can always be brought up to to uh, to debate a conservative. <laughs> sure, right. Um, I don't know. And then, yeah, at Standing Rock, spending a lot of time with 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 very religious Native people, uh, I definitely felt that the and and you know having read you know like Vine Deloria's book, um, God is Red. I definitely felt that Native religions articulated the things I had always felt so much more than any Western religion or Eastern Mm. for that matter. Yeah. And yet I'm also uh, cognizant of the fact that there's something very problematic about white colonizers 
you know, uh, taking the religion of the people that have been conquered and hmm. colonized. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, we'll take the, we'll take the music and the, and the art and the religion, but we're not going to give you your land back. <laughs> there's yeah. Something just like I cringe. I just lived in New Mexico the past three years and there's a certain type of white guy who who's adopted all of the, the native accoutrements, which is, uh, problematic and you know they have a, the shaman and they have the they have the, the the flute ceremony and the sweat lodge they do all of these things but they're not fighting their own government as it continues to to break treaties and and commit genocide and erasure so i don't i don't know i, I i'm in a spiritual bind there i, I can't see myself like really like raising my child in a native american religion when we're still in this this you know settler colonial relationship with native people that that to which i don't see the solution my my wife's family is is buddhist and so i i've i pra i have a practice and that's um i guess that's probably what i would say is my most um consistent hmm. spiritual path yeah well, I'm reminded of something Thomas Merton once mentioned about how no spiritual retreat or some book on enlightenment or spiritual growth will ever be able to match what the wind and the trees mm -hmm. and the birds of the air will speak to us. You know, there's something yeah. way more powerful when we do show up for that spiritual community, you know, and so institution is kind of a killer no matter how good it looks on the outside you know yeah it is and especially as it as it gets close to, to power you know yeah. um, i mean throughout history there's just so many examples of of churches going along with with tyrants and and dictators and genocide committers in order to maintain their their position of power which is of course yeah. ant antithetical to why they exist in the first place yeah i know a little bit about your story mark and i've read your beautiful essay talking about flying to spain with your wife mm -hmm. um, at, at this whole thought of being able to have this second honeymoon to be able to possibly conceive another child after you lost your first one yeah you lost your first child and then to back it up dude you you talked about flying back to bury your son yeah. and you're like i've never changed a diaper but i had to change his ice packs well i'm literally where i'm sitting now i'm literally looking down into this grove of trees and i can see uh silver's grave silver was our son who died after 13 hours He's buried mm -hmm. about 50 feet from here. And then if I look the mm -hmm. other way, I can see our second son, Bodhi, getting pushed around by his grandmother. Um, wow. And, yeah, you know, the, um, there's nothing There's nothing as, as terrible as losing a child. And then, like, I don't know, I think as a writer, I always tried to avoid cliches. But then when, you know, when you're sitting in the, the child loss support group at the basement of the church with a bunch of other people who've also lost their children. There's you kind of, I don't know the cliches. Uh, not, nothing seems cliche when it's that devastating when people are talking about that type of a loss. No. Um, and like that also, it also, you know, opened me up spiritually and thinking about like, why did I, I created this child and never, never really got to know him in the physical realm. But I felt really strongly that, that I will somehow be united with his spirit um, mm. after I die. Mm. So, um, and you know, I think the other thing, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know if, it's weird to pivot back into the politics, but 
Certainly having to put my son in a coffin and bury him just tore, tore me open to the experience of all these parents of black kids who get killed by the police. Hmm. And, you know, like with my, in our case, like we didn't have anyone to blame. Like no one had messed up. It was just a medical uh, one, you know, kind of one in a thousand medical tragedy where his cord got pinched during delivery. And that was enough to shake everything I believe in and to make me so mad at God and mad at everything mm. and just hate the world. Mm. And then if you compound that, combine that sense with knowing that it was a police officer or uh, who killed your child, mm. it, the, the trauma, the rage and the grief is just so unbearable. And so I do feel like I have um, been opened up to that suffering. And, you know, for whatever reason, I, I feel like when we look at terrible injustice historically, so often it's like the, the people who are experiencing will say, like, I can handle this, but don't put my children through it. Hmm. I mean, there is that the moment when the sort of migration crisis and from Syrians coming into Europe really like tapped into the, the zeitgeist or into the vein of universal consciousness when that little baby like washed up dead mm. on the beach. And that was before our son was born. And afterwards I, I, I understood it so much mm. more. And I, and then, to think of, you know, cause then I'd held my dead son after afterwards. And then I could really see why, like, I mean, I, I understood how the global forces causing that situation reached their most tragic and most unjust when someone loses their baby, you know, that, so that kind of really ripped me open. You experience firsthand the extreme that any parent just would never wish on their worst enemy. Yeah. Hmm. How are you in Cedar today? You know, we're doing pretty well. We have the, this son who's just over a year. Um, and and it, all, it, all, it all happened so quickly. Uh, he was born 14 months after Silver, and they really look identical. Mm. I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. same spirit in a different body sort of a thing. I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I'm not that spiritual of a person, but, um, you know, it's hard to say how much we would have loved our son if he hadn't died, but having mm. our first one die, like we were just so in love with Bodhi and mm. treasure every moment. And, um, you know, like this is another cliche that I've come to value is like, how do you live your life as if you're going to die the next day? Mm. And, you know, so for the past year, it's like, do I get to spend my time with him and love him and be a, a good father to him? And that seems more important than, than any of the other things. And, and honestly, um, seems more important that, than my writing career and, my activism at the moment it seems like yeah I want to be with him and because mm. uh, I don't know how long I have with him kind of brings everything into a clear view and perspective doesn't it yeah yeah it has for us for sure 
Um, so, yeah, I don't, it's a, no, we had to do a lot of work, do a lot of, you know, support groups and, um, you know, grief, trauma, grief counseling, and just, uh, and still, you know, it's not like you ever, like, get over it. I just, every sure. day, I definitely just break down and cry. Yeah. Reminded. Um, and at the same time, I just feel so incredibly blessed. You know, now we have our, this other son, and he's so wonderful. And I realize that you, if you, when you go try to go back and say, oh, what if, what if things were different? Like, I don't want to change anything at this point. I wouldn't want to undo Bodhi to have silver. So. Mm. I can't help but believe that that just made you and Cedar that much more in tune with the suffering that a lot of people face, you know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the one thing I read in like a, a book by someone who had lost a child, they said, um, they said, you know, because my daughter died, I've become such a better person, so much more empathetic. Like I can connect to people and their suffering. I can have compassion for people. And also I wish I never had had to do any of this (laughs) self-improvement. Yeah. What is it in your mind from your experience that the earth that we're protecting, that we're fighting for, what is it begging to teach us that, that we've just kind of forgotten along the way? Is that too abstract or? No, it's, it's big. I mean, I kind big, of feel but... like, yeah, maybe, maybe um, Thomas Merton quote you mentioned early, earlier answers it. I mean, it's certainly like, like I said, when I, when I felt that, native uh religion articulated what i thought or what i had believed it's that um uh you know that everything is alive everything that the minerals in the water not just the plants and the animals and the humans um and that we have a place that we belong to them yeah. or belong in them um yeah, and if you can see, or if you can gain the the, the peace of of, a, of the breeze and the, the bird, like that might actually be true religious experience. That that might be what God wants you to do. <laughs> what if yeah. God was trying to tell it? What if he's he's like, I keep sending these people these flowers and these birds, and they keep ignoring them. <laughs> like they're overlooking them they're missing the point yeah um yeah i mean i don't know it's it's uh, it's it's confused right now i mean i i have thought my whole life that nothing is more transformative and, and sort of spiritually awakening than being in nature and that was why i used to lead all these trips in nature and lead expeditions um and then there's the question of like well if 10 times more people went and had those experiences wouldn't there be no more nature for them to have it in Uh, whoa (laughs) wow so you know um i guess i'm getting more moving more towards the simplicity of 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 uh, of experiencing that sort of miracle of nature in, in smaller doses, like you don't need to go climb Mount Everest. I think Wendell Berry said someone asked him, "What's what could, what's something I can do if I live in a city and I want to connect with nature and connect with the divine?" Uh-huh. And he said, "Like grow a plant in your windowsill, you know, mm. grow a tomato or a basil or something with a little bit of love and a little water. Like a seed will turn into a living plant." And mm. you take care of it and you talk to it and then you can eat it. And it's 
delicious. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's something I think just so instructive in that, um, especially in times when you feel like paralyzed and and trapped. Um, And so, I don't know, I I, I just do think that the the small miracles in nature are, are important teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I've got this beautiful quote that ties into all that from Thomas Merton. (laughs) He says, let me say this before the rain becomes a utility that they can plan and distribute for money. By they, I mean the people who cannot understand that rain is a festival, who do not appreciate its gratuity, who think that what has no price has no value, that what cannot be sold is not real, so that the only way to make something actual is to place it on the market. The time will come when they will sell us even our rain. At the moment, it is still free, and I am in it. I celebrate its gratuity and its meaninglessness. Isn't that beautiful? It is, yeah. And I mean, that taps into so many of the great teachers. And I mean, if you you could draw a line from the Buddha to Jesus to St. Francis, um, up through so many, you know, Native American thinkers, um, through Thomas Merton and Wendell Berry and, and Suelo living without money in his cave. <laughs> yeah. I know. And you know, I've mentioned this before, but even words, man. Like Alan Watts even talks about even words. They just confuse us and they get in our way, you know? Yeah. Let's go grow up a tomato plant or go stand out in the rain and just breathe it in for a second, you know? Yeah. Sounds pretty good. I so enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I did too. Thank you so much. Great questions. Great conversation. Peace to your family and... uh, Thank you. You too. Talk soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more information on Mark and his books, visit his site, marksundin.com. You can also read some of his heart-wrenching and candid essays at outsideonline.com. and the search bar at the top, just type Mark Sundin. Finally, you can visit my website, knittedheart.com, to hear previous episodes, investigate further resources, and hear more about my ongoing work as a filmmaker. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. This is the best way to spread the good word, which allows me to constantly broaden my reach with future episodes. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.